Welcome to The Journey, a chronological study which goes through scripture from Genesis to Revelation in chronological order. So we are talking about Amos, so we are, just a reminder, we are in the time of Jeroboam II uh, and uh, Uzziah, uh, or sometimes referred to as Azariah. Same king, two different names. Um, and they, so Azariah or Uzziah is leading Judah, is the king of Judah right now. Jeroboam II is the king of Israel. And uh, it's during this time that the book of Jonah takes place, which is what we looked at last time we were together. And, um, and then we also have a contemporary of Jonah's is Amos. And it's interesting because some of the themes of Amos are similar to some of the themes of Jonah, although they're very different prophets. Jonah, if, he's, if his book is prophetic at all, um, which the Hebrews believed it was because they recorded him as a prophet, then it's because he's telling a story of his own life as a way of teaching us a lesson. And, um, and uh, which makes the whole book a little bit more palatable because it means a guy who looks like he didn't learn his lesson by the end of the book must have learned it because he's telling us the story. Um, but one of the lessons of Jonah was that uh, the Israelites forgot that God was the God of all people and that he had, yes, chosen the Israelites, but he'd chosen them in order to introduce the whole world to who God was and in order to bless the rest of the nations. And so Jonah gets really mad because God asked him to go preach to the Ninevites, which is the center of Assyria, which is, in fact, going to be a lot of trouble for Israel. So Jonah had some reason to, to be reluctant. But he asked him to go to Nineveh and preach to them, and he says at the end, well, and then the Ninevites, they repent uh, incredibly, which bear in mind as we look at the story of Amos and how Israel does not repent. <laughs> but they repent in this amazing way, and then God forgives them. And then Jonah's furious. And he says, this is why. He says straight out, this is why I did not want to tell them about you because I knew they'd repent and you wouldn't judge them and they should be judged. And so the lesson, of course, is who are you to decide who should be judged and shouldn't? And in fact, Jonah, your, your, your reasons are all very shallow. We have that whole thing about the plant where he's just showing him, Jonah, you only care about your own comfort, to be perfectly honest. You don't care about the Ninevites. You're not really worried about righteousness you're just worried about your comfort and so your judgments are askew and i'm god and i know what i'm doing and i care about the ninevites and you cared about the plant which is more important and so that's kind of where jonah was amos comes right out and tells the israelites uh get off your high horse stop being so arrogant stop thinking you're better than all these other nations and he says it in some really strong ways which we'll see as we go through amos is an angry man he is an example of righteous anger in scripture um I will just say, as we launch into Amos, I think it is a common Christian difficulty, or temptation, if you will, um, to justify all our anger as righteous anger. <laughs> I would argue most of it is not. Um, so do not use Amos as an example for the kind of anger and rhetoric that you are allowed to use with people that you don't like. Okay, having said that, Let's read about a righteously angry man. So here's the climate. Here's what's going on a little bit in the time of Amos before we jump into it. So what's happened, Jeroboam II, you may remember we talked about this briefly, that it's been ever since the division, ever since Israel and Israel, Israel became Israel and Judah, it's been hard, right? There's just been attacks from all over the place. Israel and Judah fought each other occasionally under civil war. Things haven't really been great Ahab was a terrible king who had some level of prosperity, but it was a terrible time for Israel. 
And, and most recently, they have had Syria. Syria and Damascus have been attacking them a lot. And that's where we had Ben-Hadad and Hazar. Um, we, Elisha, remember, knew that Ben-Hadad was going to be a bad dude, or Hazael was going to be a bad dude, who killed Ben-Hadad, and then his son, whom he named after the guy he killed. We'll talk all about that. Uh, but Syria's been attacking. Well, by the time Jeroboam II comes in, there's an interesting thing that happens around the the globe. A couple of things happen. One is that Jeroboam is not a good guy. He's a powerful king. And he does bring in some peace and prosperity to Israel. But part of it is also has nothing to do with him. And that's part of what Amos wants them to know too. Because part of the reason Israel starts, starts experiencing peace and prosperity is because Syria has been attacked by Assyria. And Assyria is on its way to taking over the whole world. Nobody of course knows that quite yet, except some of the prophets seem to. But nobody else knows that yet, and maybe the Assyrian rulers had an idea. <laughs> but on their way to take over the whole world, they defeat Syria. And so there's this moment, moment meaning a few decades, there's this moment where Israel is free from the oppression of Syria and not yet experiencing the conquest of Assyria, where they think everything's good. Now we know in history, they are just in this little tiny, they're like in the eye of the hurricane. It's about to get 10 times worse than it's been. But they think things are good. And they think they're good because they're good. And Jeroboam II thinks he's just fantastic. And the rest of the Israelites think they're just fantastic. And look at how God is given. So but because they start retaking some of the areas that Syria had taken, they retake the Transjordan. Remember, we talked about there are these tribes on the, or these uh, nations on the other side of the Jordan where some of the tribes used to be. And they were conquered. Those were the first ones conquered. Well, they take that back. So they feel like they're rising back to their level of prominence. That's the climate into which Amos, Amos, into which Amos, the climate into which Amos begins to speak. All right, and he sees uh, a, a lot of complacency in their position, and he sees a number of significant problems. And rather than tell you what they are, we'll 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 see them as he talks through them. All right, so just keep your eyes out for what are the things he's warning them about. What are they missing? Uh, around the world, just very briefly, so we're looking at around 750 BC, a couple of interesting points that have come up before, so I'll just point them out. Uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, we've mentioned that before, that was previously known as the earliest uh, written material. Uh, that's no longer the case, we found some earlier written materials now, but the Epic of Gilgamesh is one of the earliest. It's a Babylonian story about the flood, and we've talked about how every culture has a flood story, which lends credence to the idea that they all experience something similar. A flood, probably. Um, and so the Epic of Gilgamesh actually is, uh, is we, we attach to this time period, around 750 BC. Um, the Iliad and the Odyssey also take place around this time. But so when you, if you've ever read that, that's the time frame we're looking at, which means, should be mean to you, that the Greeks are starting to quietly become powerful. And it is quietly. They're sort of avoiding the Assyrians and the Babylonians and all these people that are that are getting taken over because right now they're just out on a little island, the Aegean. And they're just hanging out over there and they're just quietly getting smarter and stronger and not telling anybody <laughs> until the right time when they just sort of take over the whole world in a cultural way, um, which is kind of amazing. Well, and military. Um, so the Iliad and the Odyssey are actually taking place around this time according to the stories. Um, and uh, we have the first description of a chariot race, so maybe that's something that's happening in 750 BC. Maybe there are actual chariot races happening. I don't know. But according to Homer, they were. 
All right. So that's kind of the time frame. That's what's going on. Uh, I will give you a little bit of explanation. An interesting thing about the book of Amos is the first seven chapters are just his message. And the last three are a little bit of a story about, about his life. And it's helpful to know a little bit of that before the message. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a heads up of some things we'll learn later. Not a lot because I still want to get there when we get there. But just to give you a little bit of idea of who Amos is. So Amos is from Judah. He wasn't, he's not an Israelite. He's from Judah. But he preaches in Israel. So God sends him from Judah to Israel to prophesy against Israel. He goes to Israel. He starts prophesying terrible things. And what's typically the king's response when the prophet prophesies terrible things? Yeah, kill him. In this case, he doesn't kill Amos. In this case, the high priest of Israel actually uh, goes to the king and says, Amos is committing treason. He's preaching against you. And so he's actually just banished. Since he's not from Israel, they just send him back to Judah. They banish him and they literally say, go back and prophesy against your own king. <laughs> Amos says, that's not what I was called to do. <laughs> uh, well, actually, he does a little. So he goes back to Judah. But when he goes back to Judah, he does something that's a first. He writes his prophecies down to send them to the king. So he's the first prophet who we know actually wrote them down. Up until now, we've got Elijah, we've got Elisha, we've got these prophets who speak, and we have record of what they said, but they never, never wrote down a set or a collection of prophecies. Most of the prophets we'll see going forward do exactly this. So Amos kind of sets a pattern here. Amos is kind of the first. Because he's writing his prophecies down, he also does something we now associate with prophets, but if you think back to Elijah and Elisha, they did not do this at all. We don't think of them as typical prophets in this way. Because he's writing them down, he writes with a lot of imagery and poetry. He actually crafts his prophecies so they have this sort of poetic feel to them. Now you start thinking of things like Isaiah, Zechariah, Jeremiah. These are how these people prophesied too. Amos is the first. He sets this pattern. He does it out of necessity because he can't go to Israel anymore. So he has to write them down. Um, so he's kind of the first to do it this way. He, he writes his prophecies down um, and he sends them into Israel, makes him a very popular man, as you can imagine. There's a number of ways that Amos is the first also among prophets. Again, he's sort of the beginning of a new type of prophet, if you will, a new class. I don't mean class as better. Elijah couldn't, couldn't be better than Elijah, but a different class, a different group, a different way of working them. And um, remember, I'll just say this, and we'll, we'll see what he says about them in a second. Remember the sons of prophets or the school of prophets that Elisha was bringing up? Just remember them. We'll, we'll come to them in a second. Because the question is, what happened to them? And do these prophets that we begin to read about, do they come from that school of prophets? And um, we'll find out as we go. All right, so here we go. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa. The vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. Uh, first thing I want to mention here is he uses a different word for shepherd. He does not use the normal word. He doesn't use the word shepherd. What he does is he actually uses a word which breaks. Does it read differently? That's okay. I just want to make sure it's the right place. They'll all tell you sometimes I'm, in, I'm like in a totally different place than anyone else. We're good. I mean, it's the beginning of Amos. It's got to be, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> no worries. No worries. 
Sometimes the translations are slightly, uh, the, the NIV went through a, trans, a new translation shift, by the way, in the last few years. So some of the older NIVs will be different than the newer NIVs. It happens. But anyway, uh, he uses a different word for shepherds here. He doesn't use the normal word. What he does is he actually breaks it down to a definition. It's as if, it's, it's like if I was a carpenter, and instead of saying to you, I'm a carpenter, I said to you, I'm someone who works with wood. Um, that's kind of what he does. So what he literally says here is a sheep razor. That's what he says, a sheep razor. And I think the reason he does that is because he doesn't want to leave any confusion that he's being metaphorical at this moment, right? He doesn't want to say, I'm a shepherd, because shepherd was already metaphorical for leader, teacher. David talked about being a shepherd both metaphorically and literally, right? And so I think he wants to be clear. I'm not saying I'm a prophet who's a shepherd. He's saying, I actually raised sheep, okay? This is what I did with my life. He wants to be really clear about his lower class upbringing. Remember how David was picked on by Saul as being the son of a shepherd, right? Son of Jesse, just a sheep, you know, just a sheep raiser, essentially. Amos is owning that. Amos is saying, that's what I am. So here I am, and these are the words, not of a prophet, although he is, but these are the words of a sheep raiser, all right? The vision he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake when Uzziah was king of Judah and Jeroboam, son of Jehoash, was king of Israel. Well, here's an interesting thing. For years and years, this is one of those moments, for years and years, people said, this just is one other proof about scripture's inaccuracy to be historical because there's no earthquake that ever occurred around 750 BC. That is, until 1965, when an archeologist was digging in Hazor, and he pulled up some ruins and said, oh my gosh, there was some major earthquake here about 750 BC. Such an extensive earthquake. They said this had to be huge. And as they began to dig, they found that the ruins of this earthquake went all the way across Israel and Judah. They determined that the epicenter was actually probably in Damascus. So up north, and, and that it was so large that it just spread all the way through. The ripples were that big. The ruins they find are layers on layers of ruins, like it lasted for days. So it wasn't even just like an earthquake, but it was an earthquake, and then they would do their best to try to put up temporary structures, and bam, they would get hit again. And it just kind of rippled, and the aftershocks came, we don't know how big it was. There's no way to, after the fact at this point, sort of calculate the actual, uh, but it was huge. And it's interesting because this is another way in which Amos is first. Amos will refer to this earthquake before it happens. We'll see that. He talks about some things about this is part of God's judgment, is the earthquake that's coming because it weakens them for the Assyrian conquest, right? It leaves them completely unprepared is what we're now probably thinking historically happened. And so he references this earthquake to come. He talks about God's voice thundering and, and, and God's judgment coming like, a, like a, a shaking of the mountains. What's interesting is many prophets after Amos will continue to use that imagery for judgment of God. It's like this earthquake has such a memory <laughs> for all of these prophets that anytime they wanted to talk about the most fierce judgment they could think of, they went back to this earthquake. <laughs> Which is interesting because we know nothing about it until about you know, 80 years ago. And then they discovered it and went, whoa, yeah, this is big. This was big. Okay, just an interesting side note. 
Um, okay, he said, and you'll see it right here. He says, two years before the earthquake, here are the words of Amos. He said, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem. Now, is that just imagery, or is he possibly referring to the earthquake at this point? Could be, but we'll go on. The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. This is what the Lord says. So he starts with his prologue. His prologue is, destruction's coming. <laughs> the mountains are going to go. The shepherds in the valleys are going to go. The, the, the Lord's going to thunder from everywhere. It's going to be big. And then he begins to be specific. And the beginning of his prophecies are very comfortable for Israel and Judah. Because the beginning of his prophecies are all against Damascus and the Philistines, the Egyptians, all the people in surrounding areas. So he starts with this. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent. Now, in case you've forgotten or weren't here, this is not, when he says three sins, even four, he's not saying there are four sins Damascus committed, and for those four sins, I'm going to judge them. This is a poetic, this is the way that the Hebrews rhyme. They don't rhyme with the same endings. They rhyme by parallelism. They rhyme by repetition. So this is something you saw in the Psalms a lot. Mm -hmm. For three, even four. Three things the world cannot bear, four it cannot tolerate. All it means is, in this case, when he says three sins, even for four, what he's really saying is for sin upon sin upon sin. He's saying because Damascus has piled sin upon sin. And you can count, and there's always one more. You can say, well, it's just three sins. Eh, it was four. Eh, it was five. Eh, it was six. <laughs> That's what he's really saying. And he's going to use that form over and over and over. The point being sin upon sin upon sin. God is patient. God is long-suffering. But now we've hit a point where everybody in this area should duck. Okay? Here's what he says. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent. Because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth, I will send fire on the house of Hazael that would consume the fortress of Ben-Hadad. I will break down the gate of Damascus. I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Avon, Avon and the one who holds the scepter in Beth-Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. So this is Damascus. This is Syria. This is who's been attacking them. And this is 100% precisely what happens to Damascus very shortly after Amos makes this prophecy. Assyria destroys them completely. And they all go into exile. Into Kir. Except for the king who's destroyed. Ben-Hadad is gone. So the prophecy comes to pass. And he says, why does he say he's doing it? Because you were brutal to Israel. When you, you thresh them with iron, it's like if you're plowing the soil, but you used just, you, you just ripped up the soil just in damaging ways. That it wasn't even all it was supposed to be. And there's even some people who argue, you know, it's, it's interesting because God uses these nations to judge each other. So maybe he's saying that God wanted Syria to judge Israel, but Syria went at it especially brutally. And so he's like, that's all well and good that I was using you to judge them. But, but you, like Jehu, we talked about four kind of similar. You went overboard, so now you're going to receive a similar kind of brutality from the next nation that's coming to judge. One of the clear points in Amos is who's in charge? God. It's so one of the clear points of Amos. No matter who's doing what to whom, every nation thinks they're doing it, but it's God. Yes, and then yes. Question about that device of building the increasing numbers. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, but then sometimes they actually then list the number of things. So, like the example that you gave, under three things. Oh, and then they four, actually four list four things. Four six things got to test, seven and cannot stand. So, I don't understand, I guess. So, in the case, that was a bad example for me to bring up because it led to confusion. But it's, but in that case, the progression is not the number. The progression is the amount of it. There's three things the world cannot tolerate, four under which it cannot bear. It's as if it's saying, here's some things that are really hard. In fact, they're impossible. So the progression is meant to indicate an increase in strength, not an increase in number. And then, yes, he lists four things. But there's, like, case. examples? Because the same thing happens with, like, isn't it like there's six things, God hates, seven he detests, and then seven things are listed? Could be. It, where those cases are that they're actually listing the specific things, the point is that by, by using that repetition, because there again, why wouldn't you just say, here's seven things right. and list them, right? right? I would love to preach a sermon. Here's a three-point, I mean four-point sermon. <laughs> People be like, what? But even those are kind The point of... is, well, let me finish my thought. The point is, what I was going to say is, even there, the, the point, the device of doing that is to express increasing measure. In that case, it's not increasing number, it's increasing importance. And I think the same is true here, even if there are four sins, which I don't think there are, the point right. is that it's, it's increasingly important. Their sins are increasingly onerous. They're increasingly difficult. So you're right. It's not used specifically. Sometimes there are the actual numbers. Mary. Oh, um, I was going to say, well, it's kind of cool to like saying how like God is in control and stuff like, you know, using someone who is a shepherd from Judah, you know, to come into Israel. You know, there's already like two strikes against him. Oh, for sure. Thing, you know. Yeah, at the moment, again, everybody would be happy with the prophecies, doesn't matter where he comes from. But when he starts speaking against Israel, the fact that he's from Judah and he's a nobody, that makes it easy to dismiss, which is what they do. Um, all right, let's go on. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not relent. Uh, Gaza, just so you know, so Gaza is a prominent Philistine city. So talked about Damascus now. If the Philistines are over here, he's talking about a prominent Philistine city. It's named Gaza, in fact, because it's named after the, a one-time capital of Egypt was Gaza. And the Philistines, who are probably the seafaring people, we talked about that once upon a time, we don't know for sure, but they're probably the seafaring people who came over here. They actually came over and defeated Egypt. They defeated some people from Egypt there, and they probably named it Gaza as a mockery, right? We'll, we'll take your capital, <laughs> even though it's way over there. We'll take it here. You know, we'll call ourselves Gaza. Point is, it's a major stronghold of the Philistine city. So for this to be the one that, that God is going to take down, it, it's significant. It means I'm going to take you Philistines down. All right? So here's what he says. For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not relent. Because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom, I will send fire on the walls of Gaza that will consume her fortresses. I will destroy the king of Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter in Ashkelon. These are various other Philistine cities, so he's not stopping at Gaza. I will turn my hand against Ekron till the last of the Philistines are dead, says the Sovereign Lord. This is uh, pretty much what happens under Assyria, 744 to 734. So again, Assyria is going to come through Damascus. They're going to come through Gaza. Assyria thinks they're just the, the cat's meow taking over the world. God is saying, you're all just my tools at the moment <laughs> for these judgments that Amos is already prophesying. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Tyre, even for four, I will not relent. Because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom, disregarding a treaty of brotherhood. I will send fire on the walls of Tyre that will consume her fortresses. Uh, hold on. I have to start my workout. Okay. 
hey, don't waste all this speaking I'm doing. I will set fire on the walls of Tyre that will consume her fortresses. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Edom, even for four. Remember, Edom is uh, descendants of Esau. God has often protected them, told Israel not to attack them because they came from the same lineage. Edom has often ignored that and attacked Israel instead. Um, and that's part of what he's talking about here. For three sins of Eden, Edom, even for four I will not relent because he pursued his brother, his brother being Israel, with the sword and slaughtered the women of the land because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. I will send fire on Teman that will consume the fortress of Basra. Uh, his, we have no idea what those are. Someday someone will find them, I'm sure. For three sins of Am, and even for four I will not relent, because he ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. I will set fire to the walls of Rabah that will consume her fortresses amid war cries on the day of battle and violent winds on a stormy day. Her kings will go into exile, he and his officials together, says the Lord. And again, all of this happens when Assyria just comes through. All right? Chapter 2. So Gilead means Israel. Gilead's Israel. Yeah, uh, it's a place in Israel. Okay. And it's, so it's just in the same way they sometimes use Samaria to in, to. It's a synecdoche if you want the English term, but it's it's the idea of using one city to represent the entire country. But why Gilead? Uh, I don't know. I don't know in this case. Good question. Um, if you want to look it up and tell us next yeah, week, you, you could do that. I won't even be here next week. Oh yeah. <laughs> see, that would have been easy homework. You should have said you got it. I'll do that next week. <laughs> There probably is a reason, and you probably could find it if you want to. Google is an amazing thing. Uh, this is what the Lord says. For three sins of Moab, even for four, I will not relent, because he's burned to ashes the bones of Edom's king. I will send fire on Moab that will consume the fortresses of Kerioth. Moab will go down in great tumult and bid war cries and the blast of the trumpet. I will destroy her ruler and kill all her officials with him, says the Lord. So this is an interesting one. This one, he's just pronounced judgment on Edom. Now he's pronouncing judgment on Moab for destroying Edom. Not destroying Edom, but for, for being mean to Edom's king. Again, all of these wars that happened, God's like, yeah, I'm just moving the pieces around. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Judah. And this is the moment in which everybody reading or listening to this prophecy goes, wait, what? <laughs> wait, wait, we're not supposed to be part of this. This is all supposed to be for us, right? God is judging them for us. Judah, so maybe Israel's thinking, well, that's true. Judah has occasionally been problematic. So, uh, for three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not relent because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of, of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says for three sins of Israel. Oh, well, now Israel's like, wait. <laughs> I mean, that's all well and good. Judah has sometimes been a problem. Yeah, but wait, not us. We're the reason you do all this. What you do, God, you do for us. We're the special ones. We're the ones. God, you're with us. You're not opposed to us. This is why Amos got banished. So here's what he says. For three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge and in the house of their God they drink wine taken as fines. 
Now, this is fascinating, this list, because it's not, it's not a bunch of random sins. If you read it carefully, he's describing one sin, which is so onerous that it involves all of these elements. Let me break it down for you and show you. He says that they sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. So they're abusing the poor, right? Those who have money are abusing the poor. And there's, there are laws, specific laws in there to protect the poor. And one of them is this. God said, if you take a garment in pledge from somebody, because a garment keeps them warm as a blanket at night, as well as being the robe that they wear. So you take that garment as collateral. God says, that's fine. If you loan someone money, you want to take the garment as collateral, that's good. But then God turns around and says this, but don't keep it past sundown. Now you might ask, what good is a pledge that you don't even get to keep and they get to use when they need it? And God would say, well, that's the point. If you're going to loan them money, loan them money. But he says, don't keep the garment past sundown because they might need it and they'll be cold. And you should be compassionate on the poor and not use them. So that's the first thing. So what he says is they're doing that. They're taking this garment in pledge. Then he says, father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. And he says, they lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. I think if you put those two together, what's happening is they're taking probably temple prostitutes sharing them between father and son, all sorts of ickiness there, sharing them between father and son, and they're lying on the very garments that they've taken in pledge from other people, and they're doing it right beside the altar of God, whose law says you shouldn't be doing any of these things. And then to add to that, he says, in the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. So it's like this, it's like this one event that apparently happens enough for Amos to point it out is an example of how they just don't care about the laws of God. He's like, you're in the temple drinking the wine that's been given as fines for people who broke the law of God. <laughs> and you're laying on garments, having an orgy on the garments of the poor that you just oppressed. This is who you are. This is another way of saying sin piled upon sin by showing that the very, every act that they do is like, a conglomeration of just a complete denial of the law of God. You see that? He's like, this is just how you live. It sounds like it probably is just because Ammon was actually most of their aggression, or a lot of their aggression was directed at Gilead. Okay. You were, you yeah, were, when you I was looking at it, it looks already? like it was like specific, yeah, for cool. Gilead. There you go. Yet I destroyed the Amorites before them. So he says this, he says, this is what Israel is doing. And then he says, yet I destroyed the Amorites before them, though they were as tall as the cedars and strong as the oaks. I destroyed their food above, fruit above and their roots below. I brought you up out of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to give you the land of the Amorites. In other words, he's saying, when have you ever just been so strong that you could say, we're, we're awesome, we're taking over the world? He's saying all the way back to the beginning, I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you to the land of the Amorites. And guess what? I cleared out the Amorites before you really got there. You think all those battles that you fought with Joshua are because you're just such hot stuff? No, I already weakened them for you. I loosened the lid of the jar. Don't, you're, it's not you. And now I did all that because the Amorites were doing things that you were doing. And do you think that just because I brought you out of Egypt, I don't care? 
that you get to do these things that I judge the Amorites for doing? This is where Amos, Amos begins to say something fairly radical to them, which is that, no, you're not different in that regard. He doesn't deny they were brought out of Egypt. He doesn't deny they have a special place in the law of God, because what did he say to Judah? Why are they getting judged? Because they denied the law of God. He doesn't say that about anybody else, because they didn't know the law of God. There is a specialness there, but it doesn't make you less accountable. <laughs> if anything, it makes you more. I also raised up prophets from among your children. You know what else I did? I raised up prophets. Did you create prophets? No, folks, that's my work. I created prophets. And Nazarites from among your youths. I took your children and I made them important. Is this not true, people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets not to prophesy. Now, Amos is writing some of this after he's been banished. So he is one of those prophets who's been commanded not to prophesy. As far as making the Nazarites drink wine, don't forget, Nazarite was a specific sort of consecration to God that people could choose to do. It was a voluntary consecration. When they did it, one of their commitments was to never drink wine. So he's saying, you took people who had a certain strength and you, you, just, you tried to ruin them. You tried to take that strength from them. Now then, I will crush you as a cart crushes when loaded with grain. The swift will not escape the strong will not muster their strength and the warrior will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The fleet-footed soldier will not get away and the horseman will not save his life. Even the bravest warriors will flee naked, naked on that day, declares the Lord. Why does he list all these things? Because this is what they are reveling and proud of and counting on to keep them safe. They think they can do whatever they want because they have taken back land. They don't know that the only reason they've taken back land is because Assyria has helped them out. <laughs> they just think they're hot stuff again. And they walk around saying, God is with us. One of the commentaries says their motto is, God is with us. I think he made that up. There's no you know, text to that, but that's a, that's a reasonable idea. They're walking around saying, God is with us. And God is saying, are you sure about that? Absolutely. And in fact, one of Amos' strong points is, you are no different. Stop pretending to be different. Either be different or acknowledge you're not. But don't pretend to be while not being. Because <laughs> you're the same. Let's go on, Amos chapter 3. Hear this word, people of Israel. So this is the thing. He also did all those Gentile nations, but he's done with them. The whole rest of the prophecy is about Israel, right? He just... The, the Gentile nations were like the, the, just the precursor. They're just like, yes, 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 yes. But here's what I really want to tell you. And the, all those other nations um, attacked or destroyed Israel. Now, he's, now it's all about their, Israel, That's right. Israel's relationship with God. That's right. That's exactly well, in a way, right. too, it's kind of like, oh, they did this. And so then it shows, oh, they're, they're so bad and everything. And then it's like, yeah, but you do the same. Exactly. <laughs> Hear this word, people of Israel, the word the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only. So here, God's going to acknowledge, because this is a, a little bit of a rhetorical argument trick. He's going to acknowledge what they're thinking right now, if they're listening to him. They're like, but God, we are special. So God says, you only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. You're right. And then he says this, 
Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. Now, I want you to notice the subtle distinction there between I'm punishing Damascus for sin upon sin upon sin. It's like there's a certain level of sins they almost got to pass on. But with Israel, he says, you think you're special? You're right. You know what that means? That means you get no pass. <laughs> that means there's, I'm going to punish you for all your sins. Do two, now, now he says these interesting things. Do two walk together? So first, just answer the questions for me. Don't worry about where he's going yet. He's going somewhere, but let's just answer the questions. Let's pretend they're not rhetorical, okay? Do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? No. no. Does a lion roar in the thicket when it has no prey? No. Well, probably not. <laughs> I mean, I suppose you can come up with other scenarios, but I think the answer is supposed to be no. Does it growl in its den when it has caught nothing? No. Does a bird swoop down to a trap on the ground when no bait is there? No. no. Does the trap spring up from the ground if it's not caught anything? No. When a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble? Yes, they do tremble. I'm not sure how to answer that. It's a double negative question. But yes, they tremble is the idea. When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? His point is, these are all obvious questions. Don't forget the last one. <laughs> right? Don't forget the last one. Each of them have subtle references to, do two people walk together unless they've agreed to it? This may be a reference to the covenant. He may be saying, remember, Israel, this is part of the covenant. You don't obey the law, there will be curse upon you because I want the rest of the nations to know this is not who I am. But I think it's also that they can't say, well, the other nations made us do it. Right, um, right. And I think he wants to say, no, but think about it this way. There's, there's a two-edged sword to this point. When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? That means when disaster comes to Israel, the Lord caused, Lord caused it. But it also means when Israel brings disaster to another city, the Lord caused it, not Israel. You understand? There's a two-edged sword. They can't walk around saying, we only lose because God's judging us, but the other nations lose because we're strong. Uh-huh. No. If there's disaster on a city... It's the Lord. Okay. Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? You will not let your prophets speak, he's saying. But when they speak, it's like the lion roaring. And that means there's prey. And that prey is you. <laughs> so pay attention. Proclaim to the fortresses of Ashdod. Now, this is interesting. Proclaim to the fortresses of Ashdod and to the fortresses of Egypt. So these are the Philistines and the Egyptians, right? What should we proclaim to them? This is what he says. Proclaim to the fortresses of Ashdod and the fortresses of Egypt. Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. See the great unrest within her and the oppression among her people. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, who store up in their fortresses what they have plundered and looted. Here's what he's saying. Get Egypt, get the Philistines, bring them, let them look at you because you are such a bad example of what's right and wrong that they will learn from you what not to do. You think these other nations are terrible? You think these other nations are just evil? Guess what? They should come look at what you do in Samaria because what they'll learn is you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what's right. And the irony is, the point is, God wants these other nations to look at Samaria and see what? 
what is right. He wants them to look at Samaria and see who God is. And I think this is, again, explanation of why the judgment is going to come on them. Because right now, when people look at you, even these heathen nations, they go, wow, those guys are bad. (laughs) Those guys are oppressive and mean and evil and wicked. And those are the people of God? He says, I want them to come look so they'll understand. No, you don't know what you're doing. You've forgotten what's right. You store up your fortresses with what you have plundered and looted. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. An enemy will overrun your land, pull down your strongholds, and plunder your fortresses. Your fortresses are full of what you have plundered from your own poor people. So what's going to happen to you? Those fortresses are going to be plundered. This is what the Lord says. As a shepherd rescues from the lion's mouth only two leg bones or a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites living in Samaria be rescued. This is a funny way, again, this is a little imagery, a little poetic. He's saying, oh yeah, you'll be rescued. You'll be rescued like the, the leg and a, a random hand will be rescued from a lion when the, you know, hand, sheep don't have hands. Uh, leg, <laughs> random wolf <laughs> will be rescued. He's saying it's going to be that bad. With only the head of a bed and a piece of fabric from a couch. Hear this and testify against the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord, the Lord God Almighty. On the day I punish Israel for her sins, I will destroy the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. Remember we talked about the king had a winter house and a summer house in Israel? Samaria and Bethel. And we talked about the fact that archaeologists have discovered that there was an incredibly obscene amount of ivory in these palaces. <laughs> they seem to actually love ivory. Well, this is Amos is referencing this. He's like, your winter house, your summer house, your ivory, all gone. Chapter four. Isn't this a great Christmas message? <laughs> such a cheerful prophet, isn't he? Such a, such a great moment here. But look how fast we covered three chapters. Wow, that a big go-out. We might make it. All right, chapter four. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor. All right, is it nice to call a woman a cow? Not no. Then, not now. No, although I expect that he is maybe the first, right? Maybe this is where we get it from. But do understand this. It's not as mean as it sounds. I mean, it is, he's, he's very angry with them. But the word cow is actually flattering at this moment because plumpness, being a fat cow, is a sign of being wealthy. And remember that at this time period, unlike our thin, obsessed culture, they saw beauty in fatness because it meant you weren't dying. (laughs) Right? It meant you were healthy and you had food. And so he's saying you are rich and wealthy and full of food. So he means it in a derogatory way, but he's probably ironically using a term which is actually not that derogatory. He's kind of flipping it on its head. You cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness. By the way, why is he picking on the women here specifically? I don't think he's saying the women are worse than anybody else. I think he's just not leaving them out because the assumption is everything else he says is about the men. That would have been the cultural assumption. It's the men's fault. The women can say, well, look, we're just, we're just hanging out with our husbands. It's not our fault. 
And I think he's like, there is nobody exempt from this. <laughs> You're doing it too. You're oppressing the poor just by your simply living with it. Say to your husband, don't give me another drink. Go feed that person some food. <laughs> but no, you're reveling in it. You're enjoying your position. The time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. This is not imagery. This is stark reality. The Assyrians, we know, historically did this. When they went in and they conquered an area, the Assyrians are brutal, very brutal. And they like to humiliate their, their victims. And they aren't into treaties, and they aren't into sort of uh, tributes. They are into complete annihilation and humiliation of the people they conquer. They don't want to set up some sort of equal thing where we coexist. They want to take over your land and make you subservient to them in every way they can. And so the Assyrians, one of the things they would do when they captured a nation is they would line them up like chain gangs. But instead of chains on the, on the ankles, they would literally put hooks through their lips and hook them one to another? Because who wants to run then? <laughs> I mean, if you're desperate, I suppose you could try to rip it out, but they're right there too. It's not like they left you alone. But they would hook them up and then they would lead them through the cities to show everybody, this is my catch. These are my fish. That's all they are. They're not people. You will each go straight out through breaches in the wall and you will be cast out toward Harmon, declares the Lord. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do. It's not that they're not doing some of the things they were called to do. They're doing the sacrifices. Two problems. One is they're doing them at Bethel. The high places. Where should they be doing them? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. This goes back to the sins of Jeroboam 1, right? Remember how much God has made of this every time? Jeroboam created these high places so that they wouldn't go to Jerusalem. This is a big deal because God wants to be worshipped where God wants to be worshipped. But more than that, remember that the reason of having them all come to Jerusalem, if the first Jeroboam had honored that, it would have brought the nation back together. It would have required that they unite. He furthered the division by setting up places so no one had to go to Judah. So no one had to go to Jerusalem. On top of that, we now know that Bethel and Gilgal, these other temples and these other altars, are now also mixed with all sorts of false idols. Well, didn't they do like golden cows there too? Right. Like one of the... Right. So he's saying two things when he says, go to Bethel and sin, go to Gilgal and sin yet more. I think he's saying two things because this is the other problem. The other problem is... They think that by doing these sacrifices, that's all that they need to do. They can do those and then go do whatever they want. Right? It's like God has said several times already to Saul and in the Psalms and even to David, to Samuel, to various people. God says over and over and over, your sacrifices mean nothing to me if they're not a reflection of your heart and your faith. They don't earn you any points. I'm not that kind of God. I'm not wooed or controlled or mandated by what you do, I asked you to do it as a sign of devotion to me, not as a sign of control of me. So that's the other problem. Wherever they're going to do these sacrifices, they're doing them and then bragging about them, feeling like I'm, the right, I'm righteous, I'm good. This is why we're winning, because we're doing this. So when he says go to Bethel and sin and go to Gilgal and sin, he could mean two things. He could mean go ahead and do your sacrifices and then go sin. That's what you're doing. 
He could also mean the very act of going to Bethel is a sin. Right? You think it's not, but your heart's not in it, and you shouldn't be there anyway. So he's just, this is that moment when the parent says, do whatever you want, you're not listening to me anyway, right? <laughs> Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. These are all according to the law. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the sovereign Lord. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and a lack of bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me. He says, why are there even poor for you to press? Because I'm trying to get your attention. But no, the rich don't care. If you were good kings after the model of David and even after the model of Solomon in his best moments, you would know that your job as a king is to pay attention to when there's a lack of prosperity in your country, not to abuse it. He says, I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town, but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none, and dried up. I get the sense he's doing kind of miraculous things here to make it as clear as he can. Like, here's a guy over here who's righteously honoring the Lord. He gets rain, and the field right next door gets nothing. And yet they ignore it. People staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough for drink. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards, destroying them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent plagues among you as I did to Egypt. I was hoping it would spark some memory. <laughs> I killed your young men with the sword along with your captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camp. You, you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick snatched from the fire, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Now this may sound like, well, this is, why does, why does God have to do these horrible things? Listen, he's speaking to them in the way they're already thinking. Because what the rich and the powerful are thinking is, God is blessing us, and that's proof that we're doing it right. So God is saying, wait a minute, by your own argument, have you not noticed how much I'm not blessing you? Have you not noticed that if your argument is, when we're blessed, that means we're doing it perfectly right. Then look around. Because it's a really tiny circle of you that feel blessed. And yet you have not returned to me. Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. This is the prophet we all envision, right? <laughs> prepare to meet your maker. <laughs> yeah. When, when people like to claim they're prophets and they just want to use it as an excuse to be rude, Amos is their, their model. <laughs> he who forms the mountains, who creates the winds, and who reveals his thoughts to mankind, who turns dawn to darkness and treads on the hearts of the earth, the Lord God Almighty is his name. Almighty, not in your pocket. Not for you to control. Chapter 5. Hear this word, Israel, this lament I take up concerning you. He moves, I think lament is a specific form, and I think it shows a movement from him a little bit. He's moving from anger to lament. Sorry. He's like, I'm not happy about this. We do this with our kids too, right? We punish them, and at a certain point, we calm down a little bit, and we're like, I'm not happy about it. It's still going to happen, <laughs> but I'm not happy about it. This lament I take up concerning you. Fallen is virgin Israel, never to rise again, deserted in her own land with no one to lift her up. 
This is what the sovereign Lord says to Israel. Your city that marches out a thousand strong will have only a hundred left. Your town that marches out a hundred strong will have only ten left. Is it possible the earthquake does this before Assyria even comes? It's possible. Maybe that's what he meant. This is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and live. Do not seek Bethel. Do not go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. For Gilgal will surely go into exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. Or he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire. It will devour them and Bethel will have no one to quench it. There are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. So here he is. He's, he's doing what he did with Nineveh. He's giving them a chance to repent. You see that? Seek the Lord and live. Yeah, I've been strong. Yeah, I've been harsh. But there's still a chance. But stop seeking Bethel. Don't say when I go to Bethel, I am seeking the Lord. Because I've just told you, you're not. Find another way. Find me. And he says, you're turning justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. Surely this is part of his hint. You're going to seek the Lord? Let's, let's, let's stop oppressing our neighbor. He who made the Pleiades and the Orion. Now this may be a reference to some of their false gods creating the stars or being the stars or being the constellations themselves, right? As signs of the gods. This may be a reference to that. He's saying, look, don't stop worshiping the stars. There's a God who made them. Wasn't he, that also in Job? Could have been. He who made the Pleiades and Orion, who turns midnight into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls for the water of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, the Lord is his name. With a blinding flash, he destroys the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detests the one who tells the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. He's saying... Even people who have a modicum of wisdom and who are prudent, the best they can do is be privy to all this. Because they know they'll die. He's like, there's no good way out. Because justice is topsy-turvy. And if you can afford the bribery, you win. And if you can't, you lose. This isn't just a warning against Israel because there's a few bad kings. This is a warning against Israel because the entire nation is corrupt. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Shouldn't this be, like, minimal for the people of God? Like, he has to actually tell them? You want to know how to seek the Lord? Look for good things instead of wicked things. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of a minimal requirement there. But he has to tell them. Because there are people who actually despise those who tell the truth. And honor, though. It's like everything that was bad is being recognized as good, and everything that was good is being recognized as bad.
want to like see good and like all good, you know, like some. For sure. For sure. There's very little question that Amos is leveling this prophecy primarily at the leaders, right? And if you happen to be a poor, oppressed person hearing this, there's encouragement in it, right? There's, there's a call for justice. But I love this next line. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. See, this is one of their problems that Amos is pointing out. They're walking around all day saying, God's with us. We're so awesome. God is with us. He's like, well, he's not. But if you'd like him to be, <laughs> here's what it looks like. Hate evil. Love good. Maintain justice in the courts. Again, this seems so basic. Right? Just how about courts that are actually about justice? It's a thought. Hate evil. Love good. Maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, this is what the Lord, the Lord God Almighty says. There will be wailing in the streets and cries of anguish in every public square. The farmers will be summoned to weep and the mourners to wail. There will be wailing in all the vineyards, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. Now listen to this. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? Now, this may sound weird to us, because as Christians, we should long for the day of the Lord. But, but here's, again, get the context. They're looking at all the nations around them. They're starting to see some victory. What do they think the day of the Lord will look like? Judgment on all the other nations. <laughs> they think the day of the Lord will look like what Amos started this prophecy with. Uh -huh. Right? Moab and Edom and the Philistine, everybody will fall. That's the day of the Lord. They are eager for what they perceive as justice, meaning everybody else will fall and Israel will rise to its proper place again. But Amos is saying the day of the Lord is a day of justice. Why are you longing for justice? Because you are not a just nation. And if you want justice, it's going to be bad. You don't get it. You think justice doesn't apply to you. Because you're inherently superior. Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? That day will be darkness, not light. I love this. It will be as though a man fled from a lion only to meet a bear. He's like, you think God is going to rescue you from these other nations. And he is. But guess who's waiting for you when he's done with that? God, the bear. <laughs> exactly. You run from the lion and there's a bear. He says, it will be as though he entered his house and rested his hand on the wall only to have a snake bite him. Think of someone who's walking through the, 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 the outside, which is dangerous. My daughter will tell you, outside is just dangerous. Avoid it. It's not a, she's not a big outside person. But, but it's kind of like that, right? I mean, there's snakes everywhere. So you get in your house and you rest. Ha, ah, I'm finally safe. And that's when you get bitten. He's like, you think you're going to be safe in the day of the Lord? It's going to be the worst it's been. I was just thinking, too, isn't that kind of where they are like now? They think that they're, because they were, like, away from the lion, from, like, Ben-Hadad and everything, right. and then just, like... Yeah, the judgment coming is worse. Yep. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness, not light, pitch dark without a ray of brightness? I hate. And now, you got to hear this next part, as this is, now Amos is speaking God's words directly. Whether he has been speaking for God 
or speaking his words directly. At times he would say, thus says the Lord. Here he's not going to say that, but the words he's speaking sound like a quote. Okay, he says this. Because I don't think it's Amos who hates them. Could be. No, it can't be, because he says you bring me in a second. So he says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grained offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring... Or are they hearing it too? I think it's directed at the leaders, but it is certainly indicting the entire nation. Don't you think? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but it is directed as the leaders, because, because remember when Nineveh repented? And I love pairing this with Jonah, because it is such a contrast, right? Here's the, the Assyrian capital, and they repent wholeheartedly, and here's God's people, and they don't repent. And both Jonah and Amos are making the point, God is everybody's God. He's the God of the people who respond to him. <laughs> and, and who is that? And with the, with, with the people, with Nineveh, you may remember the repentance, the king leads the repentance. He calls the days of fasting. Well, Jeroboam could do that. Yeah, that's what started mm-hmm. at the top, doesn't it? Yeah, yes, yes. And if justice is going to roll like a river, it's got to start with the top. The, the poor oppressed guy can't make justice roll like a river. He doesn't have the money. <laughs> he can't bribe his way into, into justice. <laughs> it's got to start at the top. It's got to. So I think it's directed there, but it is a recognition that all of Israel is guilty of the idolatry and guilty of not seeking God, right? Now, there is some indication when he talks about I reigned on one field and not another that there's little pockets, perhaps, of people who are still seeking God. Would he have been standing on a street corner shouting it out or going to the temple? No, he went to the temple, and that's why he went to the temple, and the priest, we'll see that in a second, the priest said, stop, you're committing treason, and then he got banished, and then he wrote these letters. And I'm sure the only people that can read them are the leaders. Right? So there is a lot of responsibility on the leaders, for sure. Uh, let's keep going. Therefore, you will may bung first. Your feasting and lounging will end. The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself. That's, I, 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 I uh, about to date myself, but I, I always think when it says something like that, it happens a few times in Scripture, it says God swears by himself, which is just a weird thing. Except what bigger thing can he swear by is the point. Right? Really, what, is, what else is there? I'm reminded of, is it, did anybody, some of you may remember the old George Burns movies, Oh God? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Not theologically accurate. We all know that. But, but there is this moment in Oh God, I think it's the very first one, where he's in court. And he has to swear before he can testify, right? And, in, and there's, at the end, they say, so help me God. And he says, so help me me. <laughs> just makes me think of that okay the sovereign lord has sworn by himself the lord god almighty declares i abhor the pride of jacob and detest his fortresses i will deliver up the city and everything in it if 10 people are left in one house they too will die and if the relative who comes to carry the bodies out of the house to burn them asks anyone else who might be hiding there is anyone else with you and he says no then he will go on to say hush we must not mention the name of the lord for the Lord has given the command, and he will smash the great house into pieces and the small house into bits. I think the point here is, if you're hiding, people are going to say, don't even mention God, because really it's God who's doing this. And we don't want him to hear us. Now, of course, God doesn't need them to speak to know where they are. <laughs> but that's sort of the point, I think. And he will smash the great house into pieces and the small house into bits. Great and small. This goes back to your point. Everybody is going to be part of this whether from the greatest to the smallest. 
Do horses run on the rocky crags? Does one plow the sea with oxen? The answers to these questions? No. He's fond of these large rhetorical questions, apparently. But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. In other words, he's saying, what you're doing is like plowing the sea with oxen. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. You who rejoice in the conquest of Lodabar and say, did we not take Karnaim by your own strength? Did they? Of course not. Again, he's pointing at various conquests they've had. For the Lord God Almighty declares, I will stir up a nation against you, Israel, that will oppress you all the way from Lebo Hamath to the Valley of Arabah, meaning A to Z, all the way across. Amos chapter 7. This is what the Sovereign Lord was showing me. Okay. Now, for a moment, Amos takes a breath. The rant is subsiding. The godly rant. Okay? He's going to step back a little bit. He's going to tell us a little bit about his journey. Okay? This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested, and just as the late crops were coming up, and when they had stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive how can Jacob survive? He is so small. So Amos is saying there was a day before I started this rant where I was sitting around and God showed me the entire land being devastated by locusts. And I said, God, we're just a small people. Don't do this to us. So the Lord relented. This will not happen, the Lord said. This is what the sovereign Lord showed me. The sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. It dried up the great deep and devoured the land. And I cried out, sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen either, the sovereign Lord said. This is what he showed me. So here we have these two things. And Amos is like, stop. But I want you to notice his defense. And notice how different it is from what the leaders think of Israel. What is his defense of Israel? We're just small. The leaders, what's their defense? We're too big. Too big to fail. <laughs> We're too big to be destroyed. But Amos is a different opinion. He's like, God, compared to you, we don't have a chance. So don't do this. So God is like, okay, I won't do it. Now God has to show him why he's even considering these things, right? This is, this is, Amos was not at this moment quite aware of all the things he's just said, all the sins that he's just revealed. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb. That means it's straight with a plumb line in his hand. It's a line with a weight on it, and it lets you know whether that wall is straight or not. With a plumb line in his hand, the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, look, I'm setting a plumb line along my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. In other words, it's time to measure them. And my goodness, are they crooked. <laughs> I can't spare them anymore, Amos. I hear your pleas for their smallness. But in their smallness, they're just way off the beam. They're way off track. They are no, the plumb line is the law, and they're no longer there at all. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed, and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. So this is when Amos begins to preach this. right? He begins to say, the plumb line shows we're not doing well. How do you think Israel responds to that? Jeroboam thinks everything's fine, right? Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel. How do you like that? It's the priest. 
of Bethel sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words, for this is what Amos is saying. Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there, and do your prophesying there. Interesting, remember that phrase. Earn your bread there, and do your prophesying there. Hold that phrase, we'll come back to that later. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel, because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. Whose sanctuary is it? God's. Yeah. Whoa. Did he not just reveal, the priest, did he not just reveal the problem? <laughs> this is the priest. At the very least, even if he's going to make the same argument, he should say, this is God's sanctuary. Don't preach your heresy in here. But no. Yeah, but it's not his sanctuary. No, it's, it's not. It's Bethel. It's not anyway. He knows it. Amos answered Amaziah. Here's what he says. I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet. Now, you remember that phrase, son of a prophet? It means I don't come from the school of prophets. It appears that what has happened since Elisha's death is that the school of prophets has become, as maybe he sort of intended it to be, but a professional enterprise. You could argue it kind of has been for prophets. Elisha and Elijah, at least. Not Elijah. Elijah was pretty much despised. <laughs> Elisha may have received some benefits from the king. It's a little unclear. Remember how careful he was not to take money, though? Mm -hmm. Remember how he got mad at one of the members of the school of prophets when they took money? He was like, we should really be careful how often we do that. Well, it appears this now is the way they earn their living. So when they say to Amos, go back to Judah and earn your bread there, Amos is thinking, this isn't my job. What's my job? Shepherd. I'm a sheep raiser. This is why I made a point of it. I'm not a prophet. Not a professional prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. I don't belong to that school. I'm a sheep raiser. This is another way in which Amos is the first. All of the major prophets, well, major and minor to use it that way, but I mean all of the significant prophets throughout the rest of Scripture, are all, they all make that statement. They all say one way or another, I'm not a prophet. I'm a prophet but I'm not a prophet. <laughs> don't come <from> <laughs> yeah, there's a certain sort of despising of it. There's a certain recognition that I'm just speaking what God told me to speak, but this is not my job. doesn't mean God doesn't take care of them. doesn't mean that preachers today shouldn't earn money for their preaching. I clearly think we should. I think we should make more. <laughs> Most of us. Just saying. <laughs> just saying. I do think that. But, but he is saying, he's making that point now. I'm not going back to Judah to make my bread. I don't make my bread this way. You think that I think this is a good way to make money? To preach against the king of Israel? How dumb are you? I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a sheep raiser. I also took care of sycamore fig trees. So two things. The fig tree is regarded as a, the lowest form of work and labor that you can do. I don't know why. Because they have prickly leaves, somebody said. But it's regarded as not a great job. And he wants to throw that in. He's like, not only am I sheep raiser, I clean the toilets. <laughs> right? That's my job. Now, fascinating for those of you who know my whole theory about fig trees, that he would point out the cursed fig tree at this moment. If you track fig, fig, throughout, fig trees throughout Scripture, God is always cursing them. So I think God doesn't like them either. I think the fig tree, in fact, in, the, in Genesis, when it says they ate the fruit, and it doesn't say what fruit they ate, and we all said an apple, I think it was figs. And you know why I think it was figs? And I'm only half serious. 
Because what did they put on right after they ate of the fruit? Leaves. Fig leaves. Fig leaves are the worst thing to put on as clothing. They're scratchy and small. Not what you want to use to cover intimate parts. Anyway, I don't really think that's true, but it's just kind of funny. If you go through scripture, the fig tree always gets a raw deal. Okay. I also... I did. I also took care of sycamore fig trees, but the Lord took me from tending the flock, right? So he's like, I'm not a prophet. I'm not professional. I'm just here because God did this. The Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now then hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel. Stop preaching against the descendants of Isaac. He's like, what do you want me to do? This is what God told me to do. I'm from Judah. Do you think I want to be here? I mean, part of the reason I'm angry is because this is not a good job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. Well, I didn't run. Because the last, Jonah told me when he ran, and I decided not to do that. I don't know that <laughs> Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Your wife will become a prostitute in the city, and your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be measured and divided up, and you yourself will die in a pagan country and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. Chapter 8. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. Another picture. A basket of ripe fruit. What do you see, Amos? He asked. A basket of ripe fruit, I answered. I love, too, how these conversations with God are very straightforward. They're very, like, sheep-raising conversations, right? Amos, what's this? That's like what I do with my kids. What's this? Cookie. Good. You know. What's this? It's a basket of ripe fruit, God. Good. Then the Lord said to me, The time is ripe for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. In that day, declares the Sovereign Lord, the songs in the temple will turn to wailing. Many, many bodies flung everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample the needy, and do away with the poor of the land, saying, When the new moon will be over, then we may sell grain, and the Sabbath be ended, that we may market wheat. He says, Yeah, you follow the laws, but you can't wait for these things to be over so you can make some more money skimping on the measure. And then, when it ends, and you sell the wheat, you cheat people. Skimping on the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest scales, buying the poor with silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals, settling even the sweepings with the wheat. Does anybody remember the book of Ruth? When we went through the book of Ruth, we talked about the fact that one of the things that makes Obadiah in that story such a noble man is that he's, he's one of the few people at that time following the law which said that if you're wealthy and you have a lot of land and you're collecting a lot of wheat, God doesn't say, shame on you. He says, collect your wheat, enjoy it, but don't collect every last little tiny bit. And if some gets dropped, leave it, because then the poor can come along and get it. And Obadiah is one of the few people who does that. And Ruth goes into his field and is able to collect a lot. In fact, Obadiah says to his servants, he says, drop some extra. What's that? What's that? Boaz, Boaz, sorry, you're right. It is Boaz. Boaz's father's Obadiah. You're correct. That was one generation off. So he says, go ahead and and, uh, drop some extra. Drop some extra for them. Well, that's what he's talking about here. You're like making sure. You're cheating them. And then on top of that, you're making sure that you don't leave anything for the poor who just need to collect it. The Lord has sworn by himself. There it is again. The pride of Jacob. I will never forget. Uh, I love this. The Lord has sworn by himself the pride of Jacob. He talked about Jacob's pride earlier. What should really be Jacob's pride? God. God. 
He's like, I'm the true pride of Jacob. I will never forget anything I have done. Will not the land tremble for this and all who live in it mourn? The whole land will rise like the Nile. Does this sound like an earthquake? I think it does. The whole land will rise like a Nile. It will be stirred up and then sink like the river of Egypt. I think this is the earthquake. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Significant earthquakes do that. There's so much dust. There's so much upheaval and perhaps volcanoes that it actually blots out the sun. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for the only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or a thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. You are trying to get the prophets to stop talking. You've got a window here where the prophets are going to talk. There's going to be a day where you're going to wish they were talking. People will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east searching for the word of the Lord. They will not find it. And why? Because who's supposed to be speaking the word of the Lord? Prophets. Israel. So if you take Israel out of the picture, then people are going to be going from north to south, but Israel won't be there. They'll be going from coast to coast, but Israel won't be there because they're in exile. People will be searching for the word of the Lord. They won't find it. And that day, the lovely young women and the strong young men will faint because of thirst. Those who swear by the sin of Samaria, who say, as surely as your God lives, Dan, or as surely as the God of Beersheba lives. In other words, everybody's got their own gods. They will never, they will fall, never to rise again. Chapter nine. I'm glad we made it here because without chapter nine, we all go home and cry. Okay, so I was watching this Western. Um, Are you being Mark? Is that what you're doing? No, this is good. We know from everything we've read through here that our God is always a God of hope. And we, you will find that every prophet, and Amos is among the most doomsday of the prophets, for good reason. Because there is doomsday coming for them, and he's trying to get their attention, and he's begging with them. To seek God instead of Bethel, instead of Gilgal. You can argue, in fact, that individuals who hear this message are people who are saved through the exile. Perhaps that happens, right? Because God does always preserve a remnant of Israel. He doesn't wipe them out. And he always leaves hope. So it shouldn't surprise us that in this last chapter, God is going to end the prophecy of Amos with hope. Could I ask a question yes. about yeah. <laughs> if he's not a prophet, he's not from the prophet school, he's a shepherd, would they listen to him? They didn't. Yeah. So here's what I think. I think there's two points of credibility or two possibilities. One is if they're truly listening, they'll listen to his indictment of the sin because they'll know it's true, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. They'll say, yep, that's who we are. And that's not who we should be. They'll, they'll listen to that and they'll know... All he's doing is calling us to seek God. All he's doing is calling us to stop stepping on the poor like they're dust to the earth. And they will say, that is true. There's truth in what he says. Regardless of the rest of the message, he's right to call us to account to God. So there's credibility in the message itself. 
Second thing is, maybe that's the point of the earthquake. Right? Earthquake happens two years later. People go, oh, maybe there's still time at that moment to repent before Assyria comes down upon them. That would make sense to me. That would match other things we've seen, that that is sort of the sign that they can look back and go, oh, that Amos guy, remember when he said that the land would rise like the Nile and then sink like the rivers of Egypt? I think that just happened. I think the sun was just blotted out. I think we've gone from 1,000 people to 100 and from 100 to 10. I think the pillars and the mansions have fallen. And I think Assyria is at our doorstep. That would be the moment to seek God. You know what we find out as we read through Kings? They don't pay attention. Even at that moment, Assyria is right there on the edge, and God says to them again through other prophets. That's the other reason. There's also credibility in the number of prophets that give the same message, right? And, and they keep happening. And then they get right up to the exile, and God is still like, guys? And they're like, it's like, okay. It's just a sheep herder. I think God does that. To, I mean, they, they use that to dismiss it. And God, but that is also true of God. God has always done that. Who was the best king of Israel? What was he? He was a sheep raiser. That's what God does. That's what God does. I saw the Lord standing by the altar. And he said, strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of all the people. Those who are left, I will kill with the sword. Again, earthquake followed by conquest. Makes sense. Not one will get away, none will escape. Though they dig down to the depths below, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens above, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, there I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from my eyes at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent to bite them. Though they are driven into exile by their enemies, there I will command the sword to slay them. On the one hand, it sounds like he's going to wipe them all out. On the other hand, I think his point here is no class of people is safe. Rich, poor, doesn't matter. You're all accountable. I will keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. Oh, man, that's a terrible, terrible thing for God to say, right? Oh, my gosh. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, he touches the earth and it melts and all who live in it mourn. The whole land rises like the Nile, then sinks like the river of Egypt. He builds his lofty palace in the heavens and sets its foundation on the earth. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. Earthquake, coastal area, it's going to happen. Tsunamis. Tsunamis, you got it. The Lord is his name. <coughs> now, here it is. Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites? To which all the Israelites in one voice say, no. <laughs> the Cushites are the Egyptians. These are the people he brought Israel out of. Are you not, you Israelites, the same to me as the Cushites, declares the Lord? Listen to this. Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt? The Philistines from Kaftor and the Arameans from Kir? Oh my gosh, this changes everything. Because all along, truthfully, God has said to them, I am the one who brought you out of Egypt to be my people. But what did he just now say to them? Guess what? You're not the only nation I brought from there to here. That, that's a, that's a burn. That's a shock. That's a shock to the system for them. They're like, wait. And again, it doesn't mean they don't have a special role. They do. But not the one they thought they had. 
<laughs> He's saying, yes, I brought you from Egypt. That is still true. But do you think the Philistines got here on their own? Do you think the Arameans got here on their own? I brought everybody. You're not special in that way. <laughs> You're special in other ways, but that's not the point of this story. That's not the point of this prophecy. We're not going to talk about that because you're confused. Surely, the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. And here comes the turn. Here comes the hope. Yet, I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord. For I will give the command, and I will shake the people of Israel. Again, the earthquake's pretty obvious in all this, right? And I will shake the people of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve, and not a pebble will reach the ground. And all the sinners among my people will die by the sword. And all those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. So in other words, if you don't listen to any of these warnings, yeah, you're in trouble. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. So, mixed message, but again, part of the same thing. I'm not going to destroy all of Jacob. I'm going to rebuild things, but I'm also going to preserve the remnant of Edom and other nations. <laughs> so even here, it's time for you to learn, Israel, that I'm the God of all nations, and I rule over all nations, and I care for all nations. And when you look no different from every other nation, then you're no different from any other nation. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. And new wine will drip from the fountains and flow from all the hills, and I will bring my people Israel back from exile. And they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. And they will plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord, your God. That's it. He wants to end the prophecy on that note. He says, yeah, this is bad. And if you don't listen to it, it's really bad. But guess what? You'll be back. I'll bring you back. I will bring you back from exile and you will rebuild the cities. And we have the incredible privilege of not having living through this, but getting to see the truth of it unfold. We get to see the exile come and we get to see the way the Lord brings them back. We get to see him replant them and we get to see Ezra and Nehemiah rebuild the cities. And we get to see movement forward. And of course, ultimately, we get to see how the Messiah becomes a fulfillment of the kingdom in ways they could not even begin to comprehend. That takes them beyond the covenant, which says, live according to the law and I'll bless you, don't, and I'll curse you, and instead says, be redeemed and made holy by the law of Christ and, and live the law of love by grace. So we get, we are, as Jesus says, blessed people because we've seen the fulfillment which is true. I've got to leave you with that after such a depressing prophecy. <laughs> Go with God. Thank you for joining us. The Journey is a ministry of Discipleship Matters, which is an extension of Focus Church and is created by David McGill for the purpose of helping equip pastors 
to build discipleship communities in their own churches. If you'd like to learn more about the books and conferences and coaching offered by David, you can check out his website, davidmcgill.com. Thank you.